This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello again. Welcome back to the game. I am Hugh Wisencroft out in Qatar. Back in the UK, Gregor Robertson and Alison Arad join me on what has been a very eventful end to the round of 16 at the World Cup. And I think we have to start with Morocco. I, I do. I think we have to start there. They have booked themselves a place in the quarterfinals at the World Cup for the first time. It was a backs against the wall performance throughout against Spain, who passed them to death without really going anywhere. It went all the way to penalties, and Morocco were sensational. Bono, Yassine Banu, uh, who was in goal for Morocco, saved three, three nil. Ashraf Hakimi of PSG, a right back with a little dinked Penenka penalty in one of the most important moments for his country's footballing history. Just about the coolest man in the Northern Hemisphere. So um, absolutely unbelievable. Their fans inside the stadium at Education City making all that noise, all that passion, all that emotion spilling out at the end of it. It is probably one of the best stories at the World Cup so far that Morocco have reached the last eight. And yeah, we'll talk about Spain a little bit later on, but we have to revel don't we, Gregor, in the, I say the way that they did it to, to get through this? Absolutely. I mean, sometimes when you watch a team park the bus for what of a, one of a better phrase, and, you know, they did that for large swathes, let's be honest. Sometimes it's frustrating and you kind of, you know, you don't really find any entertainment or feel any affinity with the team. But, my God, you felt it with them. And a lot of that was to do with the fact that they still managed to kind of marry that with some great counterattacks and... Like ambition at moment in certain moments, you know, certain moments where they triggered and they kind of they went as a went as a unit and they created, you know, they, uh, the stats at the end show that Spain hit the target once and they uh, <laughs> they hit the, hit the target twice. I know it's not much in a full match of 120 minutes. They were brilliant, amazingly disciplined, like remarkable to be able to do that for such a long a long period of time. I know we've spoken about Spain over the last few days. And I, again, I keep reaching for that word. It's like it must be suffocating to play against them. How much they, how much of the ball they have, how much they must wear you down, how much, how physically demanding it is to play against a team like that. And they stuck at it. All their subs came on and put in a remarkable shift as well. You've got to give huge credit to the manager too. This is not a fluke. Like they've, they've had clean sheets in six of his seven games. You know, beat Belgium, beat Canada, drew, drew Croatia. They've, they're absolutely through on merit. And you, you know, although it was two clashes of styles very much in this game. I didn't come away from it thinking that Spain deserved to go through in any way, 
shape or form. I thought that Morocco did because of, as you alluded to there, their spirit, but also just their discipline, a tactical discipline as well. So amazing and amazing scenes at the end, not only because of the kind of balls to take a penalty like that <laughs> when so much was riding on it, but just the kind of scenes in the stands and the celebrations and the shock actually on, this, on the faces of the Spanish team as well, because we, we spoke last night about how much the uh, uh, Luis Enrique had kind of said we're just going to stay to our style, our style, our, this is our style, this is the way we play, this is the way we play. And I think you kind of learned a lesson that you've got to sometimes have, when there's such a, a counter force against that style, you've got to have another way of trying to win, and they, they didn't. So hats off to them, brilliant. Spain had 77% possession, 14 attempts at goal, only two on target, as you mentioned, Gregor. They attempted 1,050 passes in the game. They successfully completed 975 of them. They actually broke their own record at a World Cup in terms of uh, pass completion. But um, it was it was weird. I've never seen football that is so dominant and so controlling that is so ineffective, Alison. It's weird, right? Because we always talk about like, you know, if you have the ball, possession, nine-tenths, the law, all this stuff. I mean, it was just, they were going nowhere. You almost thought you, you got more chance of winning the game if you just let Morocco have it. Yeah, it was. Yeah, you're right, Hugh. It was strange. Um, I thought Morocco actually didn't didn't start like a team that wanted to park the bus at all. I thought they were in the early stages. I thought they looked. First of all, I thought they looked very European or African. I thought they looked um, confident, quite relaxed, very together. They, they had a bit of a an attitude, a good attitude. It looked they looked they looked like they felt they could do this. And it was it was as if what happened to the viewers happened to them. It's like they slowly got bored of what Spain were doing and thought, okay, it's gonna be like this, isn't it? And if we don't retreat a bit, we're gonna get exhausted. So let's just let them go, oh, you know, it's like a petulant child. Let them get it out of their system, let them pass away. And then uh, we've got confidence in our defending and it'll be okay. This is this is probably the right way. And uh, they did look extremely dangerous on the counter. And if they'd had better finishes of the ball, then they would um, they'd have won it in normal time. And I wish they had because that, that, no one wanted that extra time. That did not add anything to the, the grand tapestry of football history, did it? We didn't need it. So um, I, do, I do feel Morocco deserved it i don't know do you do, do if you don't have much possession do you deserve it i think they probably did deserve it because they they handled what happened correctly and showed some adaptability i mean you've both spoken about how luis enrique says this is this is what we do we're not going to change it given spain's record in penalty shootouts presumably you don't rely on that it, it just seems peculiar to me to let it sink into that solid pattern when you probably know the outcome isn't going to go for you. I mean, their plan was more effective. I absolutely think they deserved it. And I agree with you. They didn't They didn't arrive in the game thinking we're going to park the bus, but they knew very much that they were going to have great spells of the game having to do so. Amrabat's the key. He's He's been outstanding for them. It's kind of, it was almost like a 4-1-4-1 for large parts of the game. And he's just kind of sits in front of the two centre-halves and then reads the game brilliantly. And sometimes he's covering for fullbacks, covering them. Sometimes he's he's also the one who's brave enough at times to risk the ball and kind of step out with it 
and play the forward pass. I thought he was absolutely magnificent. And you have to say, centre halves were two A-guards, and it's really, really, it was really sad to see him go off injured. And Sice were, you know, were huge. The fullbacks dealt with everything that was thrown at them. Even when Nico Williams came on, he he was a threat, but they stuck to the stuck to the job manfully. And absolutely, I I came away from this feeling that. If any team deserved to win it, it was it was Morocco. Yeah, I covered this game uh, on the radio a little bit earlier on, and and it was it was if you can control a game in defence, that's basically what Morocco did. I mean, it was just like it was one of those all day sun, you know, one of those like you, you play against a team and all they get is thirty yard or twenty five yard shots, and you're like, you know, our keeper will gobble those up. I mean, to be honest, Spain never even took those on. They sort of they only cared about about trying to score the what seemed to be the perfect goal. And it was strange, actually, because the, on the I think the two occasions that they just passed the ball vertically rather than side to side, as in from midfield to the forwards, there was the chance that Asensio had in the first half that he blasted into the side netting. I think Morata got around the defence as well. And you kind of thought, instead of just probing and probing and probing, if you were a little bit more direct, you would have more joy. I mean, actually, I, I fully blame Luis Enrique for Spain's exit because um, it was naive. Like there was no point. You, you know, when Barcelona used to just pass it all the way back to Victor Valdez when they, they couldn't create chances and teams were defending and he it just put his foot on the ball and he would just wait for everyone to come back towards him until the pitch had been opened up and there was a little bit of space behind the opposition defence and then Barcelona under Guardiola, of course, would then try and attack because if their possession wasn't working and there wasn't space for them to exploit... They would just start from scratch and it was, you know, they just condense the pitch into such a small area. They make it easier for Morocco to defend and they make it harder for them to find space to to create a goal. And it was just, it was stupid. It was like an ideology. It didn't make any sense whatsoever. It was like you thought passing, like you got goals for passes put together. I mean, actually, when you think about it, they probably needed in that game 80 or 90 passes before they had a shot. Like that's actually the, le- like in terms of the passes over the game, what was it? 975 completed and I think 14 shots. I mean, it was your, it's right up there, you know, 70 odd passes for a shot. Come on, you, you, you know, it's just utterly ridiculous. But the thing is, I don't even want to complain about Spain because I think so much credit needs to go to Morocco. Like I said, reaching the quarterfinals for the first time in their history. And like I said, if you can control it, control a team, an opposition team by your defensive structure, that's what Morocco did today because the commitment level was so high. And that's what we've seen from them in every game, to be honest. So I wasn't surprised by that. I was kind of more surprised that Spain didn't have a, a response for it because I, I think we knew Morocco would give absolutely everything. They gave absolutely everything right down to the end basically all of their players injured, stretching, you know, trying to make it through to penalties. And I was just hoping it wouldn't be like Japan the day before. I was just hoping that they had some energy to kick the ball 12 yards, (laughs) unlike the Japanese, which trickled towards the goal. And the penalties were great and the saves were great. And it was a good shootout. I think it was a good shootout because Morocco won it, basically. I I, I think I'm biased towards them. Shout out to the Labrick Grove man then, by the way. Morocco, stand up. Come on, North Weezy. That's what I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Alison? You, can I, you were, you, did you say you were in the stadium for this? I was not, unfortunately, in the stadium. Oh. I was banished to the International Broadcast Centre. Well, I was just wondering, because on my TV feed anyway, the, I mean, the atmosphere was one of absolute hostility, whistles of hostility every time Spain were on the ball. And I don't 
given <laughs> given if you're whistled every time you're on the ball and you're on the ball as often as Spain were, that must be like having just one big migraine attack because you're not you're not if they'd if they'd allowed the opposition to have the ball more and not been so obsessed with pass 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 that the atmosphere would have been completely different because the, the crowd would have gone i don't know it was like i think our perception of it being too one-dimensional from spain was heightened by the fact that when they were on the ball there was just constant whistling which made it sound like you know people were saying oh, this is so boring. Where The Morocco fans, what they were saying was, we just want to put you under pressure because this is how we support our team. But the overall effect was one of, I just feel whether it made the Spain players feel a little self-doubt because it's like that Pavlovian response. They they had the ball a lot and none of it was being praised. It was, it was like... They'd gone to the you know the wrong party, and they were gate crashes, and they weren't they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were wearing the wrong outfits. It just didn't fit the mood of the stadium. What is key is the opposite effect, though, not what it does to Spain, but what it does to Morocco. I did get the metro straight after the game. I was one stop away on the metro, and I couldn't get on for about 10 trains, just went past, bouncing, full of um, Moroccan fans who were just singing, cheering, absolutely delighted. But I have gone to a Morocco game so far in this tournament and, you know, the stadium is 90% Moroccan fans. One of the few nations where you would say virtually everyone inside the stadium with Morocco flag and a Morocco shirt on actually supports the nation and hasn't been told to in any way, shape or form. But actually, I think during the game, you know, I was reflecting on it on the broadcast that Morocco weren't going to tire because of them, because they were basically playing a home game. So they were always going to have the energy to get through uh, extra time. They were, they were never going to tire. Like the crowd was always going to basically force them to pick themselves up and keep running. So it's, it was really more the effect that that crowd had on Morocco. I think if it is a more neutral crowd or a more partisan crowd towards Spain, if you like, then maybe they crumble, but they had everyone on their side bar a small percentage of the stadium that were behind one end, of the, uh, one goal at one end. You know, I think that has been massive for them in this competition. I think it'll be massive for them at the weekend because, you know, them like Tunisia a little bit earlier on in the competition, there are so many people living here who support that nation. that Their games are full and they are totally full of fanatical fans. Like that has, that undoubtedly has helped them, I think. It's also a big, a big game in terms of, look, look, crikey, it's a big game here in the World Cup in the last 16, but playing against Spain, there's a lot of players with Spanish links. You know, I think there's been there's kind of some political and geographical kind of tensions between them. I think there's eight miles between the two countries. Uh, there's about a million uh, Moroccans living in Spain. Uh, you know, Hakimi's spoken about kind of the racism he felt when he lived in the when You know, he was, he was born in Madrid and uh, to Moroccan parents who, who who emigrated there and so you know I, I i think that even you know even the managers played there and there's there's quite a few players who were spanish born or have links to the to the country so there's that's another kind of added little bit of spice to it but you know i'm not sure how much that plays plays into it during the actual match but i think it was a it was a huge fixture for them and they have become the kind of adopted nation as well for other african uh, countries and i think for qatar it's not surprising to see whether everyone is a genuine Moroccan supporter inside the, st- the stadium or not, it's not a surprise to see them 
massively, like overwhelmingly, in in the in the majority and in, in the of, of support in the stadium. Yeah, I, I I tend to agree with you on that. Um, I think being here in Doha, there is an element of any nation that is perceived to be, you know, representing the region. There's even, I, I think, a religious element to it in terms of you know, a lot of question marks over the World Cup in terms of the Qataris. And I think they almost feel like, you know, that Morocco is a representative of people of the same faith, for example. You do feel that, I think, um, when it comes to, if you like, the, the support the, the the support that comes from other nations towards some of the teams that have been in the World Cup, for sure. You, you do feel that. I, listen, I think it's an interesting one because I spoke about the importance of Morocco making it through to Moroccan football, you know, and it's kind of always framed as African football. And I think that is also something that now we have what is obviously a fourth uh, African team ever to make the World Cup quarterfinals. I still think it's important to reflect on it being Morocco's first time there. I just don't think that with other nations, we really will talk about them representing the entire continent. And yes, we get it. There's a different context here in that it doesn't clearly doesn't happen often to teams who come from the African continent. But I actually think it's such a special moment for Morocco. And just going forward, I, I just can't see it, you know, as being representative for every team in Africa. And I wonder what African people do think about that. I, Although obviously I'm black and clearly of African heritage. My parents were born in the Caribbean and I didn't, I, I couldn't say I was raised in an African household, but I certainly don't think it's, it's almost not right anymore to say, what does this mean for African football or to talk about it in the context of African football? Unless we would really think like, well, what does, does Morocco making it through mean something more for South Africa or, you know, or, or one of the other nations? That's an interesting point. I'm not saying that there's an answer to it. I'm not even asking you for an answer to it, but I know that it will be covered as, an African football story, uh, uh, something special for Africa. And you guys can tweet me or whatever you want, or you can tweet us if you want to discuss it, but I don't have an answer to that. I just think it's important for Morocco that they got through to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. Maybe you think it's important for Africa. I don't know if you guys have a, a view on it. Well, Africa is absolutely blooming enormous and culturally diverse. So uh, it, it, I don't know if the right word is patronizing or there's a misunderstanding. I don't, I don't know if, you know, when we, we had all this stuff with Brexit and people either decided they felt European or they didn't, or they valued their status as a European or they didn't. I don't know whether the, the sense of being African is a big one, an overwhelming one, or just a minor thing, or whether it, it enters everyday life in Africa. Because I suspect it doesn't for quite a lot of people simply because their own nations are huge and complex and have their own problems or advantages. And I don't know what advantage you gain from thinking about the bigger picture. I mean, a lot of what, you know, if a European team wins the World Cup, does that make someone who lives in Norway feel better about it? I mean, probably not, but maybe one or two would. It's it's just... And Africa's, you know, bigger than Europe and probably more, there's more diversity than there is in terms of culture than there is in Europe, I'm guessing, probably. I would think that if if Morocco were to start going really deep into this competition, say they got to the final, then yes, we're talking about something much bigger here. James Gearbrandt wrote about this in his newsletter, which was out tonight, and they touched on this. It was more about the kind of all the shocks and... And uh, but he mentioned that Pele's quote that an African team would win the World Cup before the year 2000 turned 45 this year, and we've yet to see an African team reach the semi-finals. That's I think if if Morocco were to do that, or 
as I say, get to the final. You know, if it were to go really deep, it'd be an enormous story. And I think then it would be something that probably would be there might be a more of a feel feel of ownership from uh, about. Sorry, um, that's just my hunch. I think there'll be you know we'll, we'll wait and see. It would be great to see them go far. I, th- I think on a personal note, there is an element of it's not just in football; it's in sport in general. We talk about the underdog. It's very easy to understand the underdog, but um, I think when it comes to the blend of cultures that we see at a World Cup and the blend of nations. Some nations, it's obvious. There's a political context between two different nations uh, and it's there etched in history and we sort of, it's very overt. You know, we might see two nations whose countries have been at war once in the not too distant past. There might still be, um, you know, sentiment there and it becomes very apparent that it's, it's more than just a football match to fans of those two nations. But I think generally speaking, if you're from a nation that has been colonized, you end up, you do end up supporting the other colonized nations and wanting them to smash the colonizers. That is a really weird thing for me to say. I, I know that, but I hope some people do understand that. That's that, you know, when Tunisia played France, come on, we were all Tunisian. We, we, you know, I, it, I don't know why it takes that, that context, but like you were desperate. I don't know. I don't know if you guys were, but sort of, I was like, please Tunisia beat France. And when Griezmann's goal got disallowed, and you guys know I thought it was a goal, I was still kind of happy. Do you see what I mean? Because it meant Tunisia were going to get the result. And it is a little bit like that. Like, obviously, I am an England fan. But, you know, I'll I'll have family message me from other parts of the world. They're desperate for England to lose, particularly against nations that were part of the British Empire in just about any sport. And I don't know whether, I don't know whether you guys understand me saying that or not. Well, yeah, because I think whenever there's any match at any level, actually, it's much more enjoyable if you discover either beforehand or while the game's going on who it is in your heart you want to win. And sometimes you'd be you might not even know why. It's just a deep rooted thing. You get a feeling. And it can be based on all sorts of things, from the smile of the manager to the colour of the kits to some sort of political, complicated political backdrop. So I do I do understand because Sometimes I watch a game and I don't I don't know till they've kicked off that who it is in my heart I want to win. And there'll be so many different factors informing that decision and most of them will be subconscious. So if there's something as big as colonization going on that's bound to have an impact, isn't it? Because you need to you need to find I mean Hugh as a professional do you find when you're working on on a live sport as opposed to discussing it afterwards that you you have to remind yourself to be impartial or or not do you do you park the emotional side as you guys know i'm very impartial naturally so uh so it's never an issue for me no i I, you know i never have to remind myself like I, i always especially when you're doing a live sport i always imagine that i'm the fan of the clubs that i'm watching and if they have a really terrible result, I, I feel like I'm the angry fan who's annoyed at the performance of the left back or the decisions that the manager made and vice versa. If the team, if the other team has won and played really well, I want to be that excited, giddy, happy fan that's leaving the stadium. So that's my way of being impartial. I just try and put myself in the shoes of of either team, really. And, and I guess that's why, you know, the colonization thing plays a role because if you're covering Tunisia at this tournament like I did or Morocco or that's a part of it that obviously is a part of it you know if you cover Wales against England not quite the same but Gregor you can tell me as a Scotsman you know you there is an, an element there there is a feeling there you know if you hear Amaro Heed for example being sung and you look at the words and you think about 
what it meant to the Red Wall Welsh fans when they were taking on England, despite the fact that they they knew that they were going to go out. That game in itself held such huge significance, not really just because we're neighbours. Do you see what I mean? I mean, I know that you know what I mean, Gregor. Yeah, I think what we're saying is history history matters. <laughs> no, you know, it's, it plays a part in, in your feelings and involvement in in, uh, in football, no matter how small that is. I think most people, for most people, that's true. I just think if, if you know, this is already an, an incredible story for Morocco. I think if they were to go, you know, another step or even another step further, it would become enormous. And, you know, I, I personally would love to see that happen. The good thing is their next step on this journey is not insurmountable. Portugal are an okay team. They were very, very good tonight, but they're not a perfect team. And they are by no means, in my opinion, one of the favorites to win the World Cup. They're as good as Spain, in my opinion. And obviously Morocco have just come past Spain. So they should hold no fear in the next round against, I was going to say Cristiano Ronaldo and co, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, we might as well have a listen to what has, has, has been said on a previous podcast. I can't say who by about Cristiano Ronaldo. He's starting. Absolutely, he's starting. It's Cristiano Ronaldo. Come on, man. I don't actually recognize that voice, to be honest. I don't know who that was. <laughs> you sounded but... quite tired. <laughs> <laughs> but the headline news of the evening when it came to Portugal's massive 6-1 win over Switzerland was that Cristiano Ronaldo... Their captain was benched by Fernando Santos. And uh, in his place, Gonzalo Ramos scored a (laughs) hat-trick to pretty much prove his manager right, but also effectively end Cristiano Ronaldo's international career as a starter. Because um, at this point in time, the mobility, the speed, the strength that he showed in the game, I mean, the fact that at the end of the game, they said he was 21 years old. And I was just taken aback because I thought I was watching someone who was like 26, 27 years old for the entire game. I had no idea how young he was until literally the end of the game when on the TV I was watching it here. They, they, they were sort of describing what a great evening it was for him. And I was like, yeah, he's got a hat trick. And then they said his age. And I was like, what? Why wasn't he starting already? If anything... Fernando Santos is the fool for not starting him sooner, right, Gregor? I think that's a pretty strange place to start because Fernando Santos took, took an enormous gamble tonight. I mean, it was brave. This was a brave decision. No matter what Ronaldo had done, how angry he was, and it could have backfired really badly. 
And look, I think I think I think they said on the TV that he'd played played thirty three minutes before this. This was his first start. Like, and I, th- I think he's leading the goal scorer. I think he's got nine goals for Benfica so far. So he's in good form. But still, come on, this was an enormous call, and it could not have started any better or ended any better. To be honest, I think his his first goal was just was it was kind of shocking. It was really it was poor defending. We have to say that. Like, there's no no. No two ways about that, but no one expected him to shoot, and even if they did, no one expected him to score with such kind of ferocity and 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 accuracy into that near top corner. So it was incredible. And then by the end of the night, you were kind of I was getting close to feeling sorry for Ronaldo, not quite there, but I was getting close to feeling sorry for him because it was it must be so hard to first of all to be left out, but then to watch the guy that replaced you score a hat trick, for to watch your team become remarkably coherent looking energised, dynamic, all the things that we were saying that this team could be, perhaps more so without uh, Ronaldo in the starting eleven, and it, it proved to be the case. They, you know, I say you say they're not they're not contenders. I think after a performance like that, they're going to take some beating. And it's not just because of who played centre forward; it's because of the midfield behind them. They were remarkable, so fluid, and so many rotations. I thought that Jao Felix was absolutely superb. The way he played was. That's the best I've ever seen him play, actually. His little flick for for Ramos for his first goal. There's one moment in the first half where he collected it kind of deep in his own half, ran between four players, surged forward, and again sent Ramos through and he nearly scored. He was just, he was at the heart of everything. But him and Bernardo Silva, the way they kind of either started out wide and drifted in field or vice versa, or started, started up top and dropped deep or vice versa, they were just roamed. It was hard to kind of pinpoint their formation. All, the, all you knew was that William Cavallo was the sitting midfielder and the, and the rest had license in front of them and Ramos was leading the line and it, it made for some pretty breathtaking stuff. So, Ronaldo who? <laughs> I assume he was being, I don't know, maybe he wasn't being slightly sarcastic when he said Portugal. Well, I'm paraphrasing, sounded like to me, Hugh, you were saying Portugal are bang average. But I, I wrote down afterwards... Uh, key words to describe Portugal, I put athletic, relaxed, well-balanced, technically proficient, with quick tempo. I don't think that, and they're all the qualities that have, um, that this World Cup has shown you need, actually. It's, there's been a lot of, um, a lot of athleticism. And it's, I think it's natural to compare Portugal and Spain because they're neighbours, but actually I, do, I don't think there are two teams more different there's nothing to compare at all. That Portugal just move the ball quickly and aren't afraid of a long pass if there's one. Aren't afraid to be a bit audacious with a ball. They're just so cocky and and good about it. But I don't. I, it's really hard to work out. I think how much of all those attributes I've listed are because Ronaldo was dropped. I mean, they didn't look shabby when he came on. So it's not as if. Uh, he brings the, the mood down and slows everything up. I really admired the fact that Ronaldo came on and looked as strutting as he ever did, was allowed to take a free kick and, you know, allowed. Well, uh, well, I mean, you sort of think See, he's, he's is, free, this, you know, his free, kick, his free kick record is abysmal, so he shouldn't exactly. be allowed to, but exactly. he was allowed to. But that says something. I actually thought his first touch said a lot. He, he came on and Carvalho had a free kick kind of near the byline inside his own half and he raced from the centre forward position to within five yards of him kind of demanded the ball to start the play pick quickly played a 1-2 and Cavalli was immediately charged down by a defender and kicked the ball straight out of play I think if anyone else ran towards him and said give me the ball quick we'll play a little 1-2 here he'd have told them to piss off 
Ronaldo, that's the point. Ronaldo is like he's still the guy who everyone looks up to, and now he's not. Uh, now there's not really reason enough to do it. It's the same with the free kicks. He came, he came, he came on. I saw a stat. I think he's he's taken fifty three direct free free kicks at World Cups and European Championships and scored once. Like, yeah. As you say, his, his record now is is abysmal. But no one's going to say a word to him. No one's going to say, you know, shall I take this one? Like so that it's 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 like almost oppressive. I look, I, this is just a this is just a, an opinion, a kind of a feeling, and it's hard to know how much, as you say, his omission from the team kind of liberated the team or improved them kind of tactically. We, we could see it with our eyes, but we don't know how much it was just because of his omission. But it's pretty uh, coincidental. The kind of coherence that they lacked was suddenly there, and they looked alive. They looked very much alive as a group and as a team. I, I, I have to think that the two are, are linked. But if they progress, and well, they have progressed, but if they keep progressing, and that means that there might be a penalty shootout, you would, I mean, if you were manager, you would definitely have him on the pitch for a period of extra time, wouldn't you? I mean, he yeah, of course, he could still that, be someone who that... comes on and plays and like, may play a big part. He may score the winner in the final. Who knows? But he's also got to be someone who's willing to play that part. And Crikey, we've spoken for the last couple of couple of months about how unwilling he's been to do that at Manchester United. So it's going to be interesting to see how the next week or so develops, you know? And the crowd were calling for him. Well, personally, I think that says more about who, the, who was in the crowd than, uh, <laughs> than, than anything about Ronaldo. <laughs> so... Um, yeah. But do, okay, okay, okay. It okay. must have been a hard night for him, in fairness. It must have been so, a very hard night for him. How would you how would you compare Brazil's high scoring performance and Portugal's high scoring performance? Which one would you say was the most impressive? That's a tough one. Because also we have to say Switzerland, we've not spoken about them at all, were extremely disappointing. Like Fabian Schar had a an ordeal in the first half and must have been I think he'd been carrying some kind of knock and treat I think he'd missed some training, but whatever. He was miles off it. And there was just so much space. There was the number of times that Ramos was allowed to kind of run in, in, inside channels. As I said, Joe Felix kind of sighed through the midfield. Not even mentioned Bruno Fernandes yet. It was one of his quieter nights, but he's still, you know, he's still involved in all that kind of movement and and play behind Ramos. So uh, you know, you have to, you have to throw that into the mix, and then you have to say South Korea weren't weren't the best either. So um, part of it is to do with the. With the with the opposition that they've both faced, but they were both uncertainly informed too and clinical, so that's what kind of all goes well for them both and not so well for the other other nations. I think I think the common denominator for me was the um, how, how relaxed both Brazil and Portugal were, how comfortable they were in their systems, how much much joy they were having. It. That, I mean, that was almost identical. I mean, Brazil have the better dances, but it, <laughs> there was something, there was just something about, uh, it's not, I think probably I'd say Brazil was slightly, slightly cockier than Portugal, but there was something, something quite watchable about how they were just enjoying it, you know, and you felt like, oh, they could, they, they I know both oppositions were weak and actually it wouldn't surprise me if we heard that there was some sort of bug going around the Swiss camp. They looked like, They'd all, all of them, gone down with their energy levels. It was disappointing from them, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know who who did. I think I probably enjoyed Portugal's performance slightly more, actually, probably because it was more 
unexpected. I think Portugal found a recipe today in a 4-3-3, whereas Brazil already knew what their best recipe was. So I think it was much more important that it clicked for Portugal tonight. I think the opposition, they were equally bad, yeah. both South Korea and, and Switzerland. So that's it for the next couple of days at the World Cup. Uh, we will record a couple of special episodes for you, so uh, look out for those. Thank you for listening. Check us out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you tomorrow.